0: Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that, though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm here this week with my guest, Rick Hunt, who is an elementary principal in Indiana. And uh, Rick and I have known each other for, I, I don't know, five, six years, something something like that, I think. Um, he used to be the principal at a school that I worked at in uh, central Indiana, and so we've kind of kept in touch and... Um, for a variety of reasons I'll get into in a moment, I'm really excited that he's taking the time to join us this week. So Rick, welcome to the Invisible Truths Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, one of the reasons I'm super excited about you being here is because uh, your perspective, you and I famously do not agree on everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one or two things. One or two things. Right, right. Right. Um, and on paper, people might look at us and assume that we're just going to have, like, diametrically opposing political viewpoints. But what I have found over the years is while we disagree on plenty, um, you seem to be constantly evolving uh, as a person, as a leader, and as a man in the way that you think about things. And so I have consistently found places that I expected us to disagree that we actually see things a lot more similarly than one would anticipate by looking at us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is especially true, I think when it comes to education, you have um, worked in schools that are predominantly uh, students of color, right? And so you have a unique perspective, having worked with both in, in white schools and in schools of students of color, students that are on the economic spectrum. So you've gotten to be around families of every like, race, creed, and color and, and learn from them. And so I really want to explore how those experiences have shaped your philosophy as an educator. To start, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you grew up and when you noticed some of your kind of fundamental ideologies begin to shift. When did you start to perceive that change within yourself?
1: So how did I grow up? Uh, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio area. Uh, born and raised in Kettering and Beaver Creek, Ohio. Um, White suburbia would be the uh, the the place of of home, and you know it, it was uh, not a diverse place to be. Uh, but I went off to Butler University um, again. Uh, Butler University, other than a few basketball players, football players, but out a real first population. Um, uh, joined a fraternity of guys of similar uh, mindset around football and, and sports and other things. Um, After I graduated, left Butler, probably uh, during that time, I had, I would say, kind of grown closer in my relationship with Christ. I'd I'd really begun to embrace uh, my Christian roots. Um, I'd never done that as much before. My wife, uh, her father was a pastor. Um, and with that, you, you, especially if you're in an independent Christian church in Whitestown, Indiana, you hear a lot of very, not, not to say that the church there was in any way racially divisive or had any, any views, but it's conservative, right? Like views of abortion, views of how you should live your life, walk your walk, talk your talk, whether you dance or not at parties, right? Like it's all encompassing in the conversation. And, uh, you know, then I also ran Trugey and Kimlon all through college. Then went out and squirted fertilizer on people's lawns. Um, one of the shows, because I only had an AM radio in my truck. Oh, man. One of the most entertaining shows on. I bet you, who do you think was on every day from about 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. that Rick Hunt would listen to there in that 90s kind of oh. Bill
0: Clinton. Now um... – is this? I have a guess, but I need to know first if it's a specifically political figure. Yes, I'm Senior, gonna go really. with Rush <laughs> Rush Limbaugh.
1: Yes, sir. Every day, Rush Limbaugh. See, they would play Bob and Tom in the morning. Really, you A's win. Game. And then, and then you would get into Rush Limbaugh. And so, okay. my my three, four hours a day, I'm listening to this guy talk about these conservative viewpoints and and how the world should look and. You know, as I'm shaping my young worldview, that was kind of how I approached life. I had this, this strong Christian foundation that I was building in my life and thinking about that. And then uh, also this more of a, you know, kind of my media opportunity was connecting with a much more conservative mindset. And so I, I left college and went into my educational career with a fairly conservative mindset and landed my first job in an elementary school that was the sending area school in Warren township for, uh, IPS was still doing the sending area thing. This was, do you say resegregation? How does that work, Ben? When they take deseg and get rid of it?
0: Oh, I'm not sure what the <laughs> term would be for that.
1: <laughs> <It's laughs> you still had the desegregation order that was yeah. busting kids out of Indianapolis over to all the township schools. Yeah. And at a point that got shut down. Okay, and so I, I'm not sure what term you use for, um, Separating the townships back out, but if they received a certain, if they had reached a certain percentage of people of color in their population, then they mm-hmm. no longer had to bus students in Interesting. for Yes, And so okay.
0: we started that process. lot. Early there. 2000s
1: This was ninety four through early two thousands. Yeah, right in that okay. area is where that kind of occurred. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess. I went into my first teaching career uh, at a school that was very high poverty. Again, um, about 50-50 black and white in the school at the time. Um, And very widely diverse in its socioeconomic opportunity. Um, That was where where I got my foot wet with thinking about a lot of different things in life, because suddenly, People didn't quite look (laughs) and sound and do what I thought they should do. Like, yeah, you pay your bills on time. You do the things you're supposed to do as a good citizen. And um, it was very frustrating at times. And and, as you and I have talked over the years, uh, I I would say I probably railed against the system or or against that mindset more than I, I should have at times without probably stepping back and understanding it as much as I should have. And so I would say my mindset began to shift there. I I went in with this strongly conservative view of how you should do things, believing that there was one way in the world, that's just how it should be. And as you are exposed to multiple demographics, uh, multiple lifestyles, some different things that began to build my perspective around, you know, this isn't just because there's a right or a wrong. This is because there's life and there's worldviews and there's differences of how I want to function in society. And so, you know, that very staunch conservative attitude is still underneath in a lot of things. You know, I'm a gun toting NRA member, you know, I'm my <laughs> thing. <Right, right. laughs> at the same time, I have begun over time to recognize. I need to be challenged in my view. I need to be challenged around some things. You want know, to, the last time, you and know, I talked, got together, we talked about this idea of, of, uh, how upset I was with the original push around this idea of prison to school or school to prison pipeline yeah. and how offended I was when I first heard that. How dare you? Mm-hmm. How, you don't even know. How dare you, you know? And, and then coming off of that over the years, I, I've started, you know what? I'm a part of that pipeline and understanding how, what role I might play in that if I'm not careful or not at least receptive to the idea that we have to as a culture and society recognize there are certain things we do within schools that create a structure that do not that, that kind of aim a student for that path. If I leave school without the, without an effective education having been disciplined in one way, being shut out of school, which is where I'm going to access my opportunity to change my trajectory. If I'm not put on a different path of how I can then use that education to access something better for myself and my family, then what do I resort to? Well, I resort to what's available and around me in a way to survive. I'm going what to survive you know, one way or the other.
0: Yeah.
1: And then what do we do as a society? Well, in America, we lock them
0: up. <laughs> yes. Cause that fixes people. <laughs> Cause
1: that's just what you do.
0: Right. <laughs> What separates you from a lot of the folks I know is that you, you had this initial experience of offense, but something kept you at the table. Something kept you listening. Something like kept you questioning, questioning enough until you began to kind of integrate some new information that allowed you to shift in some areas. And I'm wondering if, if you know what kept you there even after you were offended or you saw an idea that you wanted to reject. What kept you from doing that and just kind of digging in further.
1: I think one of the things that I, I don't know. One thing about me is that I don't, I don't take things at face value very well. Um, Friends will tell you when they post like a a new meme joke or something, I will go to Snopes and break it down and then come back and let them know how, how how stupid that it's not even funny for me because there's no joke there because that's just not true. Right. You know, it's, it's I a see part of Yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, two of the people who I probably do that, the mo- Eric gets the most mad about it. So um, <laughs> and it, it just it comes down to I, I had a mom who, growing up, um, would allow me to question, would allow me to debate. I didn't have to take her rule at face value. My dad was different. He would knock me on my ass if I didn't do what he said, right? But love my dad my dad, but my dad was do it. I told you to do it, get it done. That was helpful in who I am. That's kind of probably why when I tell kids, do it, <laughs> it's not time for talk. But at the same time, I'm willing to listen to kids and my, partly because my mom was willing to listen to me. She had friends, and we've talked about this not too long ago. She had friends who would kind of get on her about you're going to let your kid talk back to you like that. Well, so he's not, he's not being rude or disrespectful. He just asked him a question. Why? Like, why is that appropriate right now? My daughter's doing it to me, my 17-year-old, or soon-to-be 17-year-old, and uh, it's making me insane. But at the same time, I recognize there is often a need to step back and dig at something. You may come out in a place where you started and say, you know what? My belief structure, my, my worldview doesn't shift here because I think this is what needs to go based on all the information I have. But I like information. I like to dig at, it. I like to debate. Um, I am someone who will take the other side of the argument just to be that guy in the room because it helps me learn um, I, I don't want I don't want to go every day and just think I got it all figured out. I think it's stupid.
0: so um I think when we left off last time, we were talking about leadership, uh, but there's a story that that comes to mind almost whenever I think of you, and I'm wondering if you will will share that story with us. Um, uh, we were sitting in at the bar in a Giordano's in downtown Indianapolis, maybe three years ago, uh, uh there was a group of us and you were talking to me about, I, th- I think it was the father of one of your elementary school students, um, that who like you kind of became familiar with his story and just watching how the justice system unfolded for him and, and, and how his life was like after he tried to reacclimate, um, and how just seeing that saga play and unfold shifted something in you. And so I'm wondering if you can share parts of that story or the stories you're comfortable and then talk about the effect it has had on you.
1: Oh, boy. I'm going to have to, you know, there have been, oh, since that time, been several more dads that have just, mm-hmm. their stories and the way they've, so I'm, I'm hoping I have the right dad. But Okay. Um, there was a father who uh, I can think about right now had come out of, prison and uh wanted to re-engage in his son's life and wanted to be supportive and impacted you know and this gentleman couldn't get work um he had felonies and listening to him and understanding that here's a here's a man who wants to be a dad now um, wants to step up and take responsibility and wants to wants to get work and wants to you know, begin to, to do what he viewed as the right thing to do. Um, and he was, there were these barriers that were set up and, and roadblocks that were put in the system that just created a, a, a tremendous obstacles for him to be the type of dad he wanted to be. And, you know, he, this particular father, if it's the same one man that we talked about, you know, he, he was in tears. Um, he saying, here I am like, what do I do? You know, I want to be, I want to be, but I, how do I, how do I look at my son and say, Hey, do this. When I feel just, just put, put down by the system. When I I've served my time, I did what I was supposed to do. I, I was good in jail. I, you know, he, he was given the release. And, and here he is now back out and still serving a sentence. And it was for some, you know, he, he didn't knock anybody off. He didn't, he, I can't remember what his crime was, but it was, it in the scope of things, when do we back up and say, you've been, You did what you're supposed to do. You know, we don't, it's supposed to be reformative, right? (laughs) And it just maintains this this punitive perspective. And I started to see that more and more. I think I I talked last time about the idea, or we were chatting before about the idea of the mom who wants to work, wants to earn more than what she can bring in from the government in the handout she's taken, which, you know, that's the perspective, right? She's just taking the government handout. But if she goes and works, she loses the opportunity for insurance and, and, and things that she would need to bridge that gap before she's making an income that's going to allow her to have a living wage and a lifestyle that maintains at least where she's at now getting a handout. And, you know, it, it, it these different life lessons, different conversations. A dad who, you know, he's got the teardrop tattoo, and he looks like the gangbanger. He looks like the guy who, when I see, you know, so, Ben, I've been taking a lot since we broke, you know like you this is why I love talking to you. i I, I don't stop thinking after we've talked. and I'm driving between here and, and Myers um, yesterday, and as I'm heading that way, there are three white guys walking up the street. Skinheads is my first natural bias interpretation. white t-shirt, pants are sagging a little bit. Um, you know, not necessarily looking like a kiddo that, or, or a person I might want to engage with. And I'm recognizing what, I, I've got biases upon biases upon biases. And, you know, I had, I have a dad here in front of me with, with the teardrop tattoo and the, and the gold teeth and the, and the dreads. And he's looking like a rough dude. And all he wants to do is, is go check on his boy, you know? And, and so when he came in, he's like, Hey, can I go down and see my son? And the secretary's like, oh, you seem a little aggressive. What's going on? Everything okay? Well, yeah, he just, I got a call from his teacher. He's not acting right. I want to go down and check on him. Well, we can't we can't disrupt the classroom. And, and so I came out and talked. He said, he said I just want to go down and see him. I said, look, we'll go down and look inside the door and check him out. Let's go down. Walk down and he looks through the glass. And he just, he kind of tears up. He's like, oh, he's sitting there doing what he's supposed to do. And you see this instant love for his child, right? and you recognize as a principal uh, our initial bias of this gentleman and his attitude and how he might've looked and been acting when he came through the door, he was wound up. <laughs> he, he was wound up. Teacher called him. He went mad at us, but he was mad. And we didn't understand where that anger was, was directed. And so we immediately, because of how he looked and our bias kind of took on this, uh, this defensive mode and we going to let him go see his kid. All he wanted to do is check on him. And, and make sure he's doing all right. And then, if he needed to, pull him out the hall, give him a little what-what, <laughs> and uh, and be a dad. And that's another relationship too, that I was able to, uh, you know, cultivate from from a from a black father who was having a difficult time too because he had been in a gang. He did have tattoos that showed that, so he had permanent marks that then marked him in society as someone who may not fit your traditional role to get to get it get the traditional job, right? And so. I don't know it, it, all along these different relationships I've had or different opportunities that I've had to connect in a closer way with with parents to understand more about who they are, to understand the life that they're living, and also to understand unfortunately how the system impacts their opportunity, right? It looks like we're giving them opportunities sometimes like, hey, we're giving them all this training or we're giving them but the strings that come and the way that it, it hampers the ability to move forward can often also be, be forked. And I don't know, it, it's, it's changed a lot of my perspective going through from where you, know, you start, and you start to understand more about your population and how you can support and serve. And if you're talking, you know, the mission of, of what I think we all want to do is change trajectory of kids' lives and, and whatever that is, we want to be able to allow them to access and be the best, best they can be in whatever they want to be. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a jams guy. I believe in jobs, apprenticeship, military or or school. You know, there, there are different avenues for every child and every child has, we, it should be our job to attach the learning opportunity they have to the particular bent of genius of that child and support their growth and what's going to make them happy in life. Um, so they can be a productive member of society, but there, I've learned there are roadblocks that I don't see and have not experienced that sometimes hamper some of our families uh, last year, I had a father who uh, lost his job due to uh, made a mistake and uh, but he did what he' was supposed to do and he was trying to get that fixed turn around and uh, could not get reconnected was losing his house was any he, and, he, and he killed himself and you know yeah. that that hurt Yeah. Then, you know, to, to, to know this was a man who wanted to do it right because he was barred from an opportunity to get a job. You got to feed your kids.
0: You do. Yeah, that's that's extremely difficult. I found myself um, tearing up as well. You know, I, I think I'm someone that loves deeply, but um, as many told me, but I didn't quite believe now that I have a son, I feel a different depth of love for my son, right? And so I can imagine mm-hmm. Like there is no length you will not go to do what you think you have to do to take care of your, your child, right? Whether you right. misguided or not, like your motivation is still the same. You yeah. got to take care of my kid. Right. And so you're going to access the options that you believe are available to you. Um, yeah. and what I think, what I think people miss, you know, there's all this who, how about, Oh, it's just identity politics or are you liberal or conservative and that, and, and we get caught up in labels and camps and tribes. But at the end of the day, I think each argument is actually about people. It's about lives. It's about families. Right. And, and the choices we make, the opinions we have, the people we vote for ultimately, like it can be the difference in someone having enough hope to, to not get involved in a situation that's going to lead to their death, so They can be around for the next 10 to 20 years for their kid or mm-hmm. them taking their life or getting their life taken from them. Like literally the, the opinions we have and the people we vote for are, Our manufacturing outcomes that means someone is losing their life or they have a a second chance. Right. And, and that's huge. And, you you know, from my story, like I'm only here because the system somehow miraculously worked enough to give me a shot to be here. Right. Like that doesn't happen very often. Um, And I I'm really aware of that too often. The system fails folks. And, um, and I just wish we would have enough compassion to remember that regardless of our opinions, if we don't come back to it being about the people, and their lives, then what are we really even talking about, you know? As, as a principal, how do, you, how do you help equip your staff to notice their biases, but not let those biases stop them from doing the good work they're capable of?
1: Um, conversation, uh, you know, in a small town like I'm in now in a little different community. Uh, where the South Spencer rebels. Come on.
0: <laughs> oh God!
1: <laughs> <laughs> Until a few years ago, he was still waving the Confederate. Our little mascot was still waving the Confederate flag, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And that is that is again painting with a broad brush a community that cares deeply about its people, uh, black, white, or other here. Um, and it, but at the same time, you know, let's talk about that. There are some biases in this community. There are some deep seated racial biases in this community. And so as we talk about it as a staff, I think it's just ha- being willing to have that conversation openly and not, and not be fearful of, look, you, you know you got it, you know you got some biases, let's talk about it, let's figure it out. I have a, we have a committee that meets uh, usually every other week uh, that talks about our culture and climate and that, that is a part of what we discuss sometimes is, right now it's been more of our poverty versus middle class value biases. Which is really a bigger issue for us, um, but there is—I've uh, got—I've got some kiddos of color, not—not <laughs> not as many as I had before. I am definitely more white than I've—I've I've ever been um, in my career, as far as the kiddos coming through the doors. And I've heard—I I had a dad night who sat down and he said, "Look, I've lived in this community my whole life. I know the rules, but my son doesn't." Yet. That's a different conversation with another black father who was. What he was saying to me was, "Mr. Hunter, there are things I can say and things I can't say here. Yeah, because the, there there is a there's a line that I can't cross. That if nothing else made me step back then as a principal and look at what was happening. I believe his son was just fine. Like I wasn't receiving from him the information that he might be getting treated slightly different than other kids or different completely than other kids." That he wasn't, you know, you told the story about not being welcome in a friend's home, right? I don't see that here at school, but that was happening outside of school. And that's not something the dad's going to come just tell me because rules.
0: Right. Now, once and he understood a
1: little bit more who I was, that he was willing to talk to me about some of these things that, that occur in our community, and, and some I have to watch on. Now, How do I dig at that over time with my team and making sure that if they've been raised with that bias, most of my members here are people who grew up in this area. so. Mm-hmm do they also recognize you? I may, I may tell you that I'm not a racist at all. There's not a racial bone in my body. That'd be complete BS, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, while it may not be racist. There are racial biases within my cultural growing up that when I look at something, am I going to go to an African-American black church on Sunday morning and get the same experience as maybe someone who grew up in that? No, it's going to be different. And I've yes. been to a few of those services and they are, it, 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 I feel uncomfortable, sure, right? Yeah. Like, is that not what I'm used? To. I'm used to sitting up tall. We stand when we then we sit back down, and the preacher right. doesn't yell at me as much. Right. So,
0: you, <laughs> you don't, know. you don't, you don't run laps <laughs> in service, right? No, <laughs> <don't>
1: falling out. <laughs> no, and and I say that to me, like, I I, I believe, I want to believe in my heart, hearts that I that I'm very open and accepting and, and willing, but I do know like I had the you know, just yesterday, driving up the street, I have initial reactions that I have to be cautious of. And if you don't, if you aren't in a moment where you're already thinking about all this and what makes you think differently, that initial reaction will cause an initial reaction, open reaction, you actually do, and that can really impact what happens next. And so, um, it's just walk slower a little bit sometimes and be willing to recognize before I make this decision, what's influencing that decision. Um, with a particular situation and family and kid and that kind of thing. that That's the kind of conversations we have to keep having.
0: So I like to end these interviews with two things. And I'm sure if you've heard any of them, you've you've heard them. Um, but the first is that I like to give the person I'm interviewing a chance to ask me a question. Um, sometimes there's a question that's been burning for folks and they, they like to ask me. Other times they don't. So I just want to pause and see if there's a question you want to ask me. <laughs>
1: Um, so as I told you, uh, some of your socialist opinions kind of poke me in. I get, I get, okay. But why Bernie Sanders?
0: <laughs> ah, okay. That's a good one. Why Bernie? <clears throat> so this, this cycle, um, as I've been thinking more and more about what needs to change, and as we've lived under three years of... Um, this maniac in the White House, uh, I looked at the fields and looked at our current policies and realized that if we bring back someone, even someone like, if we could bring back Obama again, that would do nothing, right? And you know how much I love and respect Obama, right? But, but I see another democratic moderate coming in and they might make it so that we're not constantly teetering on the brink of disaster. But I I didn't hear any of the moderates advocating for platforms that I thought were going to make it so that these fathers that get out of jail and try to turn their lives around, I don't think they're going to change enough so that they can actually do that. Um, Or they're going to change enough so that instances of police brutality actually decrease instead of increase. Um, It felt like the Democratic Party really just wanted to get back to the status quo of eight years ago or four years ago. And we know that wasn't good enough because these stories were still happening, right? And so... The, the person I was looking for was someone that I thought gave us a chance to actually take a chunk out of the injustice that I see in the world. And that person was Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren was a close second. I thought she was advocating for a lot of similar policies and she might've gotten us there as well. But, um, Bernie just seemed radical enough to try to make it happen. Like logically I knew that unless he got in with a wave of other like-minded congressmen and women, like, He might get one major thing passed like Obama did, and that would be it. But maybe that one major thing was student loan forgiveness so that an entire generation of us could actually get on with our lives and not be paying, like, my student loan payment's probably going to be $700 um, a month, right? And so to, to be riddled with that large of a debt over the next 10 to 15 years means I can't buy a house, I can't put into retirement, like, I can't do anything. So if that was all he got done, at least it would free up my generation, to to live our lives somewhat. And then maybe he could get more done. Um, and so so that was my, my bend. Who gives us the best shot at doing something just radical enough to disrupt things so that we have a chance at actually having sustainable change? And mm-hmm. outside of Bernie and Warren, none of the other Democratic candidates really gave me that. And I, I, I wish that Cory Booker would have gave me some hope. I wish that Kamala Harris, because I liked both of them going into the election cycle, but they were too moderate um, like yeah. everyone else.
1: Yeah, there it is. I want to shake it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that question. That was good. That was good. Um, so the final way that I'd like to end these is... Um, i like to reflect on the themes that we have, have talked about throughout the interview um, and, and see if there is a, a quote, a reflection, or even an exercise or practice that you would leave our listeners with to help them incorporate some of the themes. And then during this interview, we've talked about recognizing our bias. We've talked about centering love. We have talked about um, remaining open to question things. And so as you think about those themes, uh, is there a practice, a quote, or, or something that you would invite our listeners to return to throughout the week so they can begin to incorporate those more deeply into their lives.
1: Be okay with being wrong. Mm. If you're okay with that, then you can learn. You can, you can step back and and honestly listen to somebody else and say, you know what? I may have been institutionalized in this particular area my entire life, but now I see that probably isn't the way things should be or need to be. I think we hold too tight to our team or our tribe or our, 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 our ideals and we hold so tightly to them that we, we're afraid to be wrong. We're afraid that what we have believed all of our lives is the only way it can be. And I guess in everything we've talked about, right, my biases can shift, my ideolog- ideological values can shift, my belief about something can shift, and that I'm open to love only if I'm willing to change and be wrong about some things. If you aren't willing to learn and be a lifelong learner, and do what you need to do and also recognize that you, it's okay to make mistakes, mistake. We, we, we don't give anybody any room anymore. Mm-hmm. We not give anybody any room to be wrong. And then to be okay with the fact that they might step back and change. We hop we, we on people so hard. And I, I think about that in the education system, right? Like the school is failing, we just want to jump on them we want to criticize the work they do. We don't dig in and look at the children they might be serving or understand a little bit more about the context of how many teachers have rolled in and out of there because of what's happened. And so, you know, we don't take the time just to simply say, "Hmm, could I be the one that's wrong in this situation or setting and and understand and try to dig in and get behind the scenes and learn and then figure it out. So I I don't know if that makes sense to you, but for me, that that's what, all of these themes are around for me is that I'm okay in my life with saying, dang it, I had that wrong for a long time. I, I need to rethink what I'm, what I'm doing here. And if I'm okay with being wrong, I'll learn a lot more. Mm. So,
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Rick, for that. And for the time that you took out of your, your week to make this interview happen. Um, if people want to connect with you, if that's something you're open with, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. They can, uh, they can look me up on Facebook uh, okay. <laughs> if they want to connect there, or if, uh, you know, if they want to reach out to me uh, personally. My email is rhunt four six zero seven seven at gmail.com. Um, yeah, don't mind, don't mind conversing that way either. Heck, if they like talking face to face or have a conversation, I'd be do that too. Yeah. Awesome. I, uh, I enjoy connecting with people. You know, I like to talk.
0: Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks again, Rick. I appreciate you. It's been good.
1: Hey, Ben. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. To learn more about my guest, Rick Hunt, you can find him on Facebook. That link is in the episode description. If you want to become a supporting member of this podcast, you can also find the link for my Patreon page in the episode description as well. Finally, if you or an organization is looking to learn more about racial equity work or the consulting work and workshops that I'm a part of through Kindred Collective, you can find that link in the episode description or go to www.wearekindredcollective.com and learn more about the work that we do. Once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.